0: Uh, a a painfully cerebral person in a lot of ways and um, I am not supposed to be in the flow I was not raised to be in the flow I was supposed to get good grades in high school get a good degree in college preferably University of Chicago where my parents went and become a lawyer. I think my parents would still send to law school if they could. Uh, and I'm not kidding. And and, um, and then marry a nice Jewish girl and uh, get married, have kids, and retire with a retirement fund. I vaguely remember I, I worked six years in a gray fabric cubicle in uh, corporate America as a computer programmer after college. And I remember matching funds. I remember 401k matching. That awesome. And uh, I also remember one company flew me somewhere uh, uh, to work on a computer system somewhere and they flew me business class. Man, the steak was awesome. The mix nuts were amazing. Good living. Uh, the only trick uh, with uh, benefits uh, was And I was uh, miserable in the computer programming world. Um, and uh, but honestly, didn't remember why. I don't know if anyone in here can relate. I talk to uh, I talk to teenagers sometimes. I do not ask them. I was talking to somebody before. I do not ask them what their major is or what they want to be when they grow up because the questions are just absurd. they just put more pressure than anything. And so we all know that it doesn't matter what you major in, and nobody knows what they're going to be when they grow up, and most of us don't grow up. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, I do tell teenagers uh, that as best you can, don't start lying about who you are, uh, who you are, what you think, what you like to eat, how you feel, whether you're gay or straight, whether you want to, don't want, desperately don't want to be sorry, desperately don't want to be a lawyer, or really want to play soccer. Don't lie about it. Because most likely, if you're telling the lie to make people around you feel more comfortable and safe, and isn't that why most of us lie uh, about who we are? uh, If if you tell the lie often enough and convincingly enough, and you will get good at the lie because it's probably, you know, you feel safer to tell the lie. You will tell the lie long enough and consistently enough and convincingly enough that eventually you will forget that you're lying. At least in my experience. You will, the, the layers of varnish of the lie will get thicker and thicker, and at some point, that you made that story up to begin with. And that certainly happened to me. And I had forgotten. I was miserable, but I didn't remember why until one day I realized, uh, December 4th, 1997, at the store, um, that I was um, lying for a living. Every day. Pretending to care about the computer systems, about the paperclips missing from the stock room, about the, about the you know, the free... <laughs> <laughs> when I worked, at, I was a temp. When I first got out of college, I temped at uh, Kraft General Foods. Anybody remember temping? I no, was Kelly girl, and um, and uh, and Kraft General Foods. My first observation about about uh, forgetting, you know, lying long enough that you forget who you are. My first observation of it, although I only had an inkling of it at the time, was if you worked at Kraft General Foods, you had, <laughs> you had a, this is stuff, I shouldn't even digress like this. But you had an awesome the, the food court, the the lunch. Had more salad dressings than I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was spectacular. It was salad dressing palooza. You know, you just it was, a, it was an ocean of salad dressings, including my favorite poppy seeds, mostly because it's just sugar and vegetable oil. Um, but every month, Kraft General Foods would give away. I'm sure they don't do it anymore, but at the time, they would give away a product of the month. They'd give away a new product of the month to everybody at headquarters. this was just corporate headquarters, a big company. And uh, I remember coming out of the elevator one day to go to lunch, to have some poppy seed dressing and a little lettuce on the side, and seeing a line of like 50 or 60 people wearing expensive suits, you know, grown adults much older than me and estimable people with master's degrees in business and finance and, you know, people making six-figure salaries and doing very important work. And I'm standing in this long line. And I said, uh, what are you guys waiting for? And they said, the product of Must Day. And I said, "What's the product of the month? A jar of cheese with light." <laughs> Anybody here relate to standing in line for a literal or metaphorical jar of cheese with light, wondering what the hell you're doing? Well, that was me in those cubicles for the next five or six years, and and so I I remember thinking, oh boy, you know you 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 grow up, right? You have you, color your pictures and you have your dreams and you have your pets, and you fall in love. Puppy love even. You fall in love and you write in your diary and you take trips and you learn to roller skate and you learn algebra and you are starring in school play and you dream of going to college and you get dropped off and you cry and your mom cries and you and you go to class and your mind gets blown by your new favorite professor and you learn, you read Shakespeare and you graduate and you and then you and in my jar of cheese it just seems like that That doesn't seem like that was the destiny but I am off the subject so grossly that it's embarrassing anyway if I had any shame about these things that would <laughs> <laughs> be right, anyway so so I uh, had that realization December 4th I'm actually not that proud so I'm kidding for December 4th 1997 I had, this, I had finally had a full on revelation realization wake up call breakdown breakthrough epiphany whatever you want to call it I didn't buy it. I didn't plan it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't deserve it more than anybody else. I just got it. I went. In, I was learning, taking a computer programming class I didn't want to take to learn computer programming skills I didn't want to have so I could quit the job that I didn't want in the first place so I could make more money than I knew I'd be earning so that I could raise money for a wedding I knew I shouldn't be having. And all these inauthenticities were piling up on my head and my heart. And I was just desperately unhappy. Didn't know why. I had no debt. Good job. Everything good. Wonderful fiance. Everything good. And in that, I went into the bathroom, threw cold water on my face. In the middle of that class, one o'clock p.m., December fourth, nineteen ninety-seven, Chicago. And and just asked one more time, why am I so miserable? And all of a sudden, I realized the answer. Oh, because I'm lying for a living. Lying to everybody I work for. Lying to my family, lying to my fiancé, and lying to myself. Every day, and I've been lying successfully. Lying so successfully that I forgot I was lying. I started believing that I cared. Started pretending to be interested in the project. Wanting to make the company better, whatever it was. And for other people, they were all in. I was not all in. I was acting. I was full of it, and it it was not working. I was dying. So uh, I quit. Not that day, because I'm not an idiot. I had to find out, I'm an idiot meaning the salary and the, you know, benefits. I knew that it was going to be music. I have always been a musician. Always. I knew it was music. I didn't know what. And frankly, I'm glad nobody, you know, like I tell teenagers, you know, don't start lying about who you are. Uh, another thing I would say, uh, if you're ever talking to a teenager who has a dream that makes no sense to you, Don't be the one to tell them that it's impossible that they'll succeed. Why be the one? Let somebody else tell them. You be the one who says, "Awesome! you want to be a professional cap dancer on Broadway? You should totally chase that. Definitely move to New York. Crash on somebody's couch and start auditioning. Go for it. Right? Don't be the one who says, ooh, maybe as a hobby you could tap in. You You know, but that's tough. That's the you know, don't be the one. And nobody was that one for me, for whatever reason. Nobody said, you're moving to L.A. to make music? Ugh. It's like moving to, you know, New York, to try brought, you know. Nobody told me. So I went. I went. And I started singing songs. Now, the, the, the thing was, I knew I was, um, you know, a superstar in training. I knew that the, that the city would lay out a red carpet for me and uh, that the floodlights on Hollywood Boulevard would direct themselves towards over my apartment in West Hollywood and say "He's finally arrived, the brilliant Danny has finally made it to the music industry where he always belongs. Or nobody's going to care at all. That was more, you know, more like the reality. Nobody's going to care, nobody's going to notice, and it's for me to carve out... Uh, whatever musical life I was going to carve out. And uh, that control freak in me went nuts. That to-do list guy. I, uh, wor- I worked hard at worrying. Um, and uh, I, I tried to control the direction. I tried to control the relationships I, I had. I tried to make things happen. You know, standard Cliche. You know, you go, you make things happen. Knock on doors. I'm reading Walt Disney's uh, biography right now, and that guy, man, he made things happen. Even at 17, he was knocking on doors, offering animation services that he did not know how to provide. And if they hired him, he learned what he had to learn. I ain't no Walt Disney, but I did try my best, and I said yes to everything. Well, it turns out there were some things I was to do and some things I wasn't to do. And maybe you can relate to that. If you look back, whether it's five years you looking back or 40 years you're looking back, you look back and you say, well, yeah, what, what did you try to make happen back then? Yeah, that never worked. What was on the to-do list? What was what was I supposed to do? What was everyone expecting me to do? What did I think I needed to do? Uh, yeah, that, that's not how this turned out. Seems like it never is." I'm through asking where I'm going
1: I've been asking all my life
0: I've grown tired of all
1: this wondering when everything seems to turn out right so when my Nothing to do Want to know the future I wish this I'm okay I've always been And I'll always Be that way So here goes nothing I'm taking opening up knowing that I'm in good hands here goes everything it's all on the line but I'm not afraid this time some say it's crazy some say naïve it's you. <laughs>
0: now for at least a dozen years, the trick is to uh, surrender the illusion that I'm in control of how things are working out. Um, I find that uh, no matter what plans I make, and no matter what I put on the to-do list for one day or 20 years, I will do it if I'm going to do it. And frankly, those things that I was writing on my to-do list—if you hypnotized me and asked me the truth—I'd probably say I never believed I actually would. I just put it on the list because I thought I was just supposed to. Um, and I asked uh, the the uh, people in the first service this question, and it's one of my it's one of my favorite questions to ask. Um, is uh, What are think of a couple of the best things in your life? People. Oh, I got there because I crossed the street instead of stopping. So I met my husband on the corner. Oh, yeah, I applied for that job, but I didn't get it. And as I was heading to the car, I ran into an old friend. who said, oh, yeah, we're hiring. Or I took a vacation, and my car broke down in Des Moines. And I loved it, so I never forgot it, and that's why I live in Des Moines and on and on and on. And it, it never seems like the thing on this to-do list is the best thing. Even if you're writing down the ten-point or ten-year plan to get to the best thing, when you arrive, it's not the thing you wrote down. In my observation. and um, And my... Part of my story I'll share with you this last part of this uh, morning is is that there one thing that's been puzzling me ever since I got to LA is the kind of music I have made. The I yeah, I know this is going to sound like a shock. But I am not a rock star type. Right. I have never had very much masculinity. You know, I'm like the softest heterosexual guy in the room, you know what I mean? Uh, not just my belly, which is, keeps getting bigger over the years. But I, I, I've never been much for macho stuff. My friends are always, and my guy friends are always the softest, sweetest guys. And uh, I, I, I am—I'm I, a—I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. I have the cleanest bloodstream in the music industry, you know? <laughs> I've been to therapy. You know, if I hadn't gone to therapy, maybe I would have written better song. I mean, I'm kind of not kidding. You know, there's, there's misery. You turn on the radio, and codependence and obsession and misery is pretty right and very commercially successful. Um, it's value-added in meeting people where they're at. I get it. But it's never been my thing. What I've done is something different. Uh, I did, in fact... Uh, Say yes to everything I got to I told you I, I went I went wherever I as another song of mine says I went where the ocean said to go. I kept saying yes wherever I got an offer. I played at parties or I sang comedy clubs. I did anything. But there was one thing that it kept I kept getting pulled back to, and that is there is no term for it, which is part of the problem, but positive music. It, I don't know what else to call it. There is no word for it. Imagine 20 years, you say, I make music, and somebody in the music business says, oh, really? What kind of music? And I say, I don't know. This conversation's already over. i got nothing to tell you. It's, it's inspiring, but no, it's not religious. No, it's pop. I guess it's pop, but it's just a message. I guess. It's not preachy. I don't know what to tell you. Never mind. You know, you know it plays over. Oh, I've sold 100,000 records. Really? What kind of music? Oh, I don't know. Conversation's over. I,
1: you know.
0: They don't, you know, they don't, there's nothing to say about it. There is no such genre. I keep doing it, and it's—I'm not saying it sounds heroic or anything. It is the thing. My wife
1: says, "Danny, for God's sake, not every lyric has to be complete sentences. It doesn't have to, Every song doesn't have to have a message." I'm like, I can't let it go.
0: I, but that—that that is a—that's for me the ultimate example of what I'm talking about in terms of you're, we are, as far as I can tell, we are. Uh, 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 my, my my favorite metaphor that I came up with all these years uh, uh, since uh, since I wrote the water songs, um, some of you are familiar with. I'll sing one before we close. Um, is that is those cars at an amusement park? You know, I said Disneyland, but you know, they, you put it, you put the kid in the driver's seat, and it's the one time you can put the kid in the driver's seat because they can flip the car back and forth and drive you crazy and give you whiplash, but they can't actually you know drive to connectivity because the car is on a track. And my observation is that's us. We're, 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 and I, whether or not, whatever you call God or whatever you believe, an atheist could agree with me. Uh, it seems like we go there, wherever that is, regardless of the to do list or the ten point plan. It just doesn't seem like that's, that's not how we get where we're going. We get where we're going, that sounds ominous, but whether we want to or not. And yet, if I ask you what your favorite things are in, in your life, and if, like many hundreds and thousands of people I've talked to on this subject, if you're in agreement, if, you're, if your situation is similar, you don't actually take credit for the things that are the best things in your life. They fell into your life. They, you found your way there. It was an accident. It was, right, accident, so to speak. So if the best things in our lives, are the things we don't plan. But God's sake, why are we planning so hard? And why are we staying up all night wondering if, or worrying about the plan? That's a game we play to pretend that we're driving the bus. But And here's the thing. I don't find this to be a discouraging or a disempowering idea. I find it to be spectacularly liberating. If I can wake up every day and not lie to myself that I'm going to Decide how the day is going to go. I can take a deep breath, address the thing that's right in front of me to do, and let the rest be. Or as I summarized when I started doing uh, workshops and things on my water song, I experiment with the idea, the possibility that yesterday is done, tomorrow is none of my business, and today I have all that I need. Today is done. Tomorrow is none of my business. And today I have all that I need. So Danny, who moved all the way across the country to get rich and famous, the absolute non, never, ever would be a rock star guy. Lots of natural musical talent, but no macho charisma whatsoever. Nothing. Right? Found himself writing songs like this. One power
1: invisible, and you see it everywhere and every day. One power indescribable, and you speak of it with every word you say. Mysterious until you know the truth. As simple as the love inside of you. Call it God. Call it sin, Call it Jesus. Call it Lord. Call it Buddha, Baha'u'llah. Angels' wings or heaven's door. But whatever name you give it, it's all one power to see.
0: It's the power
1: of the love in you and me. We speak so many languages, Different clothing, different colors, different names. The difference is only dangerous when we forget that in the heart we're all missing. the same. And we'll remember once we close our eyes to see that such we differences were never meant to be. Call it God. Call it Spirit or Jesus or Lord. Call it Buddha, Bahá'u'lláh, God's heaven, earth and soul. It's Mohammed, it's your mind. It's your soul, it's your spine, It's the universe, it's you, it's earth or father time. But whatever name you give it, it's so all one power, name to sing. Whatever name you give it, it's the very air we breathe. It's the power of the love, you and me, one power.
0: especially surprising to my family that I was showing up at houses of worship other than synagogues. Like all the time. Like swinging for Catholic and Christian and Buddhist and Muslim and Mormon and Hindu and uh, religious science and unity places. Uh, I grew up going to synagogue every Saturday. Shabbat, Sabbath dinner, Friday night at home. Remember when everyone are Friday nights? Kosher home. Uh, learned Hebrew as a kid. My older brother is an Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Jack. So the picture was very puzzling and very inconvenient. Uh, you don't turn on, you know, iHeartRadio and hear One Power. and I really did want to turn on iHeartRadio and hear myself. And I still to this day don't know how that happens. I write pop songs and they're good. Uh, I write the codependent pre-therapy love songs. But, but this thing, this thing has always had the juice for me. Right? This thing. And um, it has only slowly dawned on me why. Um, And if I can indulge you to go a little late, uh, I'll share with you just this story and then wrap up with a song. Is that all right? Everybody's fine. Okay. Um, well, uh, so I started making this music and started, and like I said, singing, my, my parents were like,
1: oh, another church. Great. Is there a synagogue you could sing at somewhere? You know, it could have been a cancer.
0: And uh, so, um, over the years, I've put together sort of some understanding of, of uh, why why I do what I do, and I tell the story, hopefully it's a little interesting, and, and if you can relate in it at all, you know, to looking back and understanding how you ended up, where you ended up, because like I said, it probably wasn't on your 10-year plan or 50-year plan. And uh, I am in an ongoing, lifelong process of allowing that to be okay. Forgiving myself for not achieving things that I clearly never wanted to achieve, even though my balance sheet would have been better. My family would have been more comfortable with it, or friends, or whoever it is. Whoever it is I left behind, right, doing what what was mine to do. Because we all, I, I always love the moment when you say out loud who you really are and somebody gets offended. It's kind of sort of a hilarious, you know, thing. Uh, anyway, so um, my, uh, my grandparents uh, uh, lived in a small town in Poland near the Russian border. And they had uh, many brothers and sisters, uncle aunts, grandparents, parents, uh, living in a small town. And they got married in the mid-20s, my grandparents. And um, uh, the the German army was approaching 1939, and uh, they either had heard stories or just uh, probably had heard stories, but had a hunch to get out of town. And each of them, my, my grandmother and grandfather, each had a brother on one, on each side, the four of them, they had other brothers and sisters, but four of them decided to cross over into Russia. So, they went to the border and told the Russian uh, guard, uh, border guard that they were going to a wedding in Russia. So, Russia let them in. Um, then, the Nazi army arrived and the Russians uh, tried to enlist uh, my uh, the, the two uncles. Russian army, and um, they refused. Their intention was to go back home. They refused, and the four of them were arrested and sent to Siberia, to a labor camp in Siberia, where they uh, experienced things they never talked about the rest of their lives. um, I do not know what it was like up there, I just know they never said another word about it. Um, And uh, it was while they were up there that they received a uh, a letter in code from somebody who lived in their town in Poland telling them that their entire family was gone. That the day the day after they left, the Nazi army arrived and took their family, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, parents, grandparents, and took them uh, behind their house, lined them up, and uh, ended their lives. Um, needless to say, they never recovered from that. Whoever could. Okay, so they made their way back down from Siberia, back to, their intention after the war was to go back to their town, but they weren't welcome in their town, which was the case for a lot of Jewish people returning. Their homes had been taken by their neighbors, and uh, they were under threat of traditional violence, if they stayed. They actually had to sneak back out of Poland, it or not. And they went to the safest place in Europe. They went to uh, West Berlin, American-occupied West Berlin. My mom had been born on the back of a of a donkey in Usistan as they were making their way down. In West Berlin, my uncle was born, my mom's little brother. Okay. So they're in West Berlin with two kids shattered. No no possessions, no idea where to go. Okay? Meanwhile, the Hallbright family lived on the north side of Chicago. The Hallbright family lived on Drake Street. And uh, after the war, uh, books were published of Jewish names of European survivors of the Holocaust for American residents, Jewish residents, to find family and relatives. The Hallbrock family flipped through that book, found any name they recognized, and sponsored them to come to the United States. Sponsored my Bubby and Zadie and great uncle on both sides, the four of them, to come to America. They got on a ship. My mom still remembers the ship as a little girl. They sailed across the ocean and came to Ellis Island. My mom still remembers seeing the Statue of liberty in the distance and everyone on the boat we think that they had arrived in a safe place. My mom still remembers Union Station in New York City, where they went to take a train to Chicago to sleep in the Hallbruch family's living room when they first got to Chicago after the war. The, in the Hallbrot family's living room, was an upright piano. And my mom tells later that my Bubby and Zadie arrived in this home, first home in America they ever saw, and they said, well, I guess a good American home has a piano in it. So they bought a little upright piano. Before they had fully furnished the place that they ended up moving in. The Hallbrot family, by the way, co-signed leases for people to... Have homes when they arrived in America, multiple families. So, my bubby and daddy lived across the street from the Albright family, and they put a little upright piano in their living room before they had furniture, much furniture. And uh, on that upright piano, I used to play recitals for my bubby and daddy years later. All three Namod boys learned to play piano. Um, I was the only one. Let, let us quit after a few years. I never, I never, I quit lessons because I'm lazy and I never practiced. But I never, obviously never quit the music and I kept playing for my buddy and baby in that home until they died. In fact, uh, on my dad's side, she, my bubby lived in 98. She uh, lived her last 10 years in a Jewish nursing home in Stokin, Illinois. She was the youngest of 13 kids from Poland father was a shoemaker. She used to joke, but I don't think she was kidding that they were so poor they didn't have shoes. Um, she arrived at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And um, like I said, her last 10 years in the nursing home, she had, uh, so she arrived, she lived in a road-infested apartment with her, with her uh, husband, my grandfather. Uh, they had two boys, older and younger. The younger boy was troubled until he joined the Navy, got his act together, and then died in the Navy in his early 20s. My bubby had that flag, the folded flag, up on her wall for the rest of her life, heartbroken the rest of her life about it, visited his grave on his birthday for the rest of her life. And um, I never met my uncle, Jack. My brother's named after him, Rabbi Jack. My, his, uh, Jack's older brother, Sheldon, was about five feet tall, my bubby, by the way, is about four or six. She's about as tall as wide as she was tall, never did a day of exercise in her life. Ficy, tough little woman who used to take a bus every day to the Sears Tower, stand outside in the cold in the winter in Chicago to work on the fourth floor of the Sears Tower, tallest building in the world. She was afraid of heights, so she never went past the fourth floor, I swear to God, in twenty five years of Sears. <laughs> but she was always early and she always stayed late, and Sears treated her right all those years, kept her on. Kept a pension when she retired after 25 years without a high school diploma. Um, but the, her older son, Sheldon, was uh, had a very tough time on the west side of Chicago. He was the smallest kid. He was a Jewish kid in a neighborhood where there were no Jewish kids. Got crap kicked out of him all the time. But he was smart as a whip, and he uh, got a full academic scholarship to the University of Chicago. Then got a full academic scholarship to Harvard Law School. Then became a law professor and his specialty for the next 45 years was civil rights, constitutional rights, protecting our right to freedom of speech, freedom of faith, freedom of press, freedom of expression. 45 years. He just retired last year, and he's been winning awards even before his retirement for his commitment to civil rights. Right? That's my dad. So, we we wind back the clock, and we find a piano in a living room. Before my grandparents had furniture, and on the other side we find an absolute commitment and devotion to America, and to education, and to culture, and to rights. Right. So it's taken me years to piece together this story, and there's nothing about this is nothing about this is fake or exaggerated. This is this is me. So, day after day, year after year, I moved to West Hollywood trying to become a star, write a pop song, you know, attract some attention in the music industry. meanwhile, I keep writing songs like One Power. And I'm not doing it to sound heroic. It's something, it's like, it's the thing I feel the most. And only gradually has it dawned on me that that is, this is who I was born to be. That, that singing in churches and for all of the world's faith was never shame to the family or a betrayal of Jewishness which cost so much and which cohered and saved so much and of which I'm very proud. It was was the opposite of shame. That I have been, that the fire in my spine to do this weird, indefinable, frustrating, and not very lucrative thing has the fire was planted in me before I was born. And I'll never know Who in my family was a songwriter? Those generations, they were eradicated. Somebody was a songwriter. Somebody was a singer. And I'm singing for them. Uh, On their behalf, the music. The first song, uh, besides One Power, the first song uh, that I'm going to sing right now is uh, I'm going to string two together. The first one is if there's a song that ever summarized this this notion that what I actually am doing is enough. What I actually have done is enough. Enough. I don't know how often you have that feeling, but I basically never have it that I've earned enough or expressed enough or achieved enough or risen far enough. Right? Never enough. Certainly haven't lost enough weight. You know, learned enough. Enough, never enough. Uh, This song was 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 a dabble in the notion that on the day my heart stops beating, maybe I could take my last breath Knowing that I had, in fact, done enough—that what I had done was enough—it was a thought experiment, uh, and it became a very personal song to write, and it's always been a very personal song to sing. And then, and then uh, I'm going to string it together with a, with a song written by another Russian by a Russian Jewish immigrant who arrived in America to escape uh, threats. To his and his parents' lives, Jewish life in, in uh, Russia, and without any education in music business, in composition or in technique, became one of the world's most successful and beloved songwriters. Enlisted in the Army in World War I, um, just, to, just, to, uh, just to be present for the troops, traveled around the world entertaining and singing for the troops, and along the way wrote a love song to the country that had saved his family's life. And it was uh, uh, every time I visited my bubby in Skokie, my 98 year old bubby, uh, they'd roll out all the uh, they'd roll out the grand piano and they'd roll out all the old Jewish people um, into the uh, living room of the, of the nursing home, and and have me sing a little concert for them. And my bubby always requested a song by Irving Berlin to close. Um, uh, and I always sing it in her honor and I always uh, sing it in honor of the country that saved my family's life. Uh, from that moment that uh, the Hallrock family spotted the Luden name on uh, on that registry, and brought my family to Chicago, where I then grew up and where my father and mother still live. So, thanks for having me. Um, and uh, here is a little bit more music to close. Thanks for being patient um, with me going crazy long, as is my tendency.
1: If this is my last song, if this is my final day, if tomorrow I'll be gone, what do I want to say, if this is my last song, if it's my time to go, when my body's moved on? What will I have to show? Oh, but fortune and fame They scatter to the wind The things that make a name Just don't matter in the end But is the world a little more peaceful Oceans and skies A little more blue Is humankind A little bit wiser About the good That we can do Does the sun Shine a little bit Brighter Where before There was only rain If so Then I'm glad I came Have I given hope to the hopeless? Has a hungry soul been fed? Has a child stood a little bit taller because of something that I said? Have I left a little kindness? Have I eased a little beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the ocean wide with foam. God bless America my home